0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show.
1: Section 3 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Isabella of Angoulême, Part 1. No one would have imagined that Isabella Angoulême was destined to become the future Queen of England, when King John ascended the throne, for she was then not only the engaged wife of another, but, according to the custom of the times, had been actually consigned to her betrothed, for purpose of education. Hugh de Lusignan, surnamed Labrune, was the affianced lord of Isabella. He was eldest son of Hugh the Ninth, the reigning Count de la Marche, who governed the provinces which formed the northern boundary of the Aquitanian dominions, called in that age French Poitou. He was a vassal prince of the French crown, and by virtue of his authority, as marcher or guardian of the border, was a most formidable neighbor to the Aquitanian territories. For, if offended, he could at pleasure raise the band and arrière ban, and pour on them the whole feudal militia of a large portion of France. The mother of King John was deeply impressed with the necessity of conciliating this powerful neighbor she had been forced at the death of richard to do homage at tours in person to philip augustus four point two eleven ninety nine and by her wise mediation she reconciled john and philip negotiating an alliance between prince louis and her granddaughter blanche of castile she even travelled to spain and was present at the splendid marriage of her granddaughter who was wedded at burgos to prince louis by procuration Afterwards, her daughter, the Queen of Spain, accompanied her across the Pyrenees with the young bride to her native territories of Guienne. Queen Eleonora intended to escort Blanche to Normandy, where Prince Louis waited for them, but she fell sick with fatigue and retreated to Fontouraud towards the close of the year 1199. In a letter written by her on her recovery, she informs King John that she had been very ill but that she had sent for her favorite cousin America de Thouars from Poitou that she was much comforted by his presence and through God's grace she was convalescent queen eleonora then proceeds to urge her son to visit immediately his Poictou provinces and for the sake of their peace and preservation she desires him to form an amicable league with the count de la marche This epistle is dated faunt 1200, and was the occasion of King John's progress to Aquitaine in the summer, but little did the writer suppose that, before the year was expired, the whole powerful family of Lusignan would be exasperated by King John's lawless approbation of the bride wedded to the heir of their house. Isabella was the only child and heiress of Aimer, or Americus, Count of Angoulême, surnamed Taillefer. By maternal descent she shared the blood of the capetian sovereigns her mother alice de courtenay being the daughter of peter de courtenay fifth son of louis the sixth king of france the inheritance of isabella was a beautiful province called the angoumois situated in the very heart of the aquitanian domains with perigord on the south poitou on the north saintonge on the west and la limousine on the east The Angoumoy, watered by the clear and sparkling Charente, abounded in all the richest ailments of life. Altogether it was fair and desirable as its heiress. The Provençal language was at that era spoken through the district. Isabella of Angoulême may therefore be reckoned the third of our Provençal queens. The province to which she was heiress had been governed by her ancestors ever since the reign of Charles the Bald. Isabella was actually abiding at one of the castles of her betrothed, when her parents sent for her, to be present at a day of high ceremonial, on which they paid their homage to King John, for the province of Angoumois. Indeed, it may be considered certain that the young lady herself, as their sole heir, was required to pay her personal homage to her lord Paramount, as Duke of Aquitaine. Her betrothed was absent, But the Count of Yew, his brother, surrendered the fair heiress, at the request of her parents. He was deceived by the message of the Count of Angoulême, and incurred great blame, as if he had treacherously surrendered the young bride of his brother. But, who could deny the parents the pleasure of enjoying the society of their child? It was at the high festival of King John's recognition in Angoulême, as sovereign of Aquitaine, that the English king first saw the beautiful fiancée of Lusignan. He was thirty-two, she had just entered her fifteenth year. Notwithstanding such disparity, he became madly enamored of her. The parents of Isabella, when they perceived their sovereign thus captivated with her budding charms, dishonorably encouraged his passion, and by deceitful excuses to the count of you prevented the return of Isabella to the castle of Valence, a proceeding the more infamous, since subsequent events plainly showed that the heart of the maiden secretly preferred her betrothed. Had John Plantagenet remained in the same state of poverty as when his father surnamed him Lackland, the fierce Hugh de Lusignan might have retained his beautiful bride, but at the time his fancy was captivated by Isabella, her parents saw him universally recognized as the possessor of the first empire in Europe. They had just done homage to him as the monarch of the south of France, and they knew he had received the elective suffrages of the English people, in preference to the hereditary right of his nephew Arthur, that he had been actually crowned king of England, and that his brow had been circled with the chaplet of gold roses, which formed the ducal coronet of Normandy." John was already married to a lady, who had neither been crowned with him, nor acknowledged Queen of England, yet she appears to have been the bride of his fickle choice. The son of his great uncle, Robert, Earl of Gloucester, had left three daughters, co-heiresses of his vast possessions. The youth and beauty of Avisa, the youngest of the sisters, induced Prince John to woo her as his wife, The wedding took place at Richard's coronation, but the church forbade the pair to live together. The Pope, who had previously commanded the divorce of Avisa from John, because the Empress Matilda and Robert, Earl of Gloucester, had been half-brother and sister, now murmured at the broken contract between Isabella and the heir of Lusignan. But as this betrothment does not seem to have been accompanied by any vow or promise on the part of the bride, his opposition was vain. The Lady Isabella, as much dazzled as her parents by the splendor of the Triple Crowns of England, Normandy, and Aquitaine, would not acknowledge that she had consented to any marriage contract with Count Hugh. As Isabella preferred being a queen to giving her hand to the man she really loved, no one could right the wrongs of the ill-treated Lusignan. Moreover, the mysterious chain of feudality interwove its inextricable links and meshes even round the sacrament of marriage. King John, as Lord Paramount of Aquitaine, could have rendered invalid any wedlock that the heiress of Angoumois might contract without his consent. He could have forbidden his fair vassaless to marry the subject of King Philip, and if she had remained firmly true to her first love, he could have declared her fief forfeited, for disobedience to her immediate lord. King John and Isabella were married at Bordeaux, sometime in the month of August 1200. Their hands were united by the Archbishop of Bordeaux, who had previously held a synod, assisted by the Bishop of Poitou, and solemnly declared that no impediment existed to the marriage. This event threw Count Hugh of Lusignan into despair. He did not, however, quietly submit to the destruction of his hopes, but challenged to mortal combat the royal interloper between him and his betrothed. John received the cartel with remarkable coolness, saying that if Count Hugh wished for combat, he would appoint a champion to fight with him. But the Count declared that John's champions were hired bravos and vile mercenaries, unfit for the encounter of a wronged lover and true knight. Thus, unable to obtain satisfaction, the valiant Marchere waited his hour of revenge. While King John sailed with his bride in triumph to England, where he was anxious that she should be recognized as his wife, not only by the peers, but by the people. For this purpose, being just then on his best behavior, he called what the chroniclers term a common council of the kingdom at Westminster. The ancient Wittena Gemot seems the model of this assembly. Here the young Isabella was introduced and acknowledged as the queen consort of England, Her coronation was appointed for the 8th of October, and there exists a charter in the tower, expressing that Isabella of Angoulême was crowned queen by the common consent of the barons, clergy, and people of England. She was crowned on that day by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Clement Fitzwilliam was paid 33 shillings for strewing Westminster Hall with herbs and rushes against the coronation of Lady Isabella the Queen, and the chamberlains of the Norman exchequer, were ordered to pay Eustace the chaplain, and Ambrose the songster, twenty-five shillings, for singing the hymn Christus Ficet at the unction and crowning of the said lady queen. The expenses of her dress at this time were by no means extravagant. Three cloaks of fine linen, one of scarlet cloth, and one gray pelisse, costing together twelve pounds, five and four pence, were all that was afforded to the fair Provencal bride, on this august occasion. The whole of the intervening months, between October and Easter, were spent by the king and queen, in continual round of feasting and voluptuousness. At the Easter festival of 1201, they were the guests of Archbishop Hubert, at Canterbury, where they were once more crowned, or rather, they wore their crowns, according to the ancient English custom at this high festival, it being the office of the primate of England, always to place them on the heads of the king and queen on such occasions, when he was abiding in the vicinity of royalty. Wars, and rumors of wars, awoke the beautiful Isabella and King John from their dream of pleasure. The Duchess Constance of Bretagne had eloped from her husband, the Earl of Chester, and married a valiant poictive Sir Guy of Thouars who showed every demonstration of successfully asserting the claims of his son-in-law, young Arthur Plantagenet, for whose cause Anjou and Maine had already declared. Adding to this alarming intelligence was the news that Lusignan and his brother, the Count of You, were conspiring with the family of Bretagne and raising insurrections in Poitou, to avenge the abduction of Isabella of Angoulême. These troubles caused Isabella and her husband to embark at Portsmouth for Normandy, King John sailed in a separate galley from the Queen, and in stress of weather, ran for the Isle of Wight, a place of retirement where John often abode for months together. The Queen's ship was in the greatest distress, but at last made the port of Barfleur, where King John found Isabella waiting his arrival. The conspiracy, of which the disappointed lover of Isabella was the mover, was somewhat retarded by the death of the Duchess Constance of Bretagne in 1201, soon after the birth of her third child, the Princess Alice, who was finally the heiress of the Duchy. King John, regardless of the tempest that still muttered around him, established himself at Rouen and gave way to a career of indolent voluptuousness, little in accordance with the restless activity of his warlike nobility. In that era, when five in the morning was the established breakfast time, and half past ten in the forenoon, the orthodox dinner hour, for all ranks and conditions of men, the court was scandalized at finding that King John never left his pillow before midday, at which time his barons saw him, with contempt, issuing from the chamber of the fair Isabella. This mode of life made him far more unpopular in the 13th century than the perpetration of a few more murders and abductions, like those with which his memory stands already charged. His young queen shared some of this blame, as the enchantress who kept him chained in her bowers of luxury. The royal pair paid, however, some attention to the fine arts, for the magnificent mosaic pavement of the palace of Rowan was laid down while the queen kept her court there. Eleanora of Aquitaine, now advancing into her 80th year, still acted a queenly part in the arena of Europe. After resigning her vice-regency of England into the hands of King John, she had assumed the scepter of her native dominions, and was then governing Aquitaine, residing with a peace establishment in perfect security at her summer castle of Mirabel in Poitou. When Count Hugh de Lusignan, joining his forces with those of young Arthur of Bretagne, Suddenly laid siege to the residence of the aged queen. This was a plan of Count Hugh's devising, who meant, if Eleonora had been captured, to have exchanged her for his lost spouse. But Eleonora, after they had stormed the town, betook herself to the citadel of Mirabel, from whose lofty heights she scoffed at their efforts. She sent to her, her son for speedy aid, and with a slight garrison and scanty provisions, held out heroically till his arrival. Once and only once did the recreant john prove himself of the right stem of the great plantagenet when he heard of his mother's danger he traversed france with lightning speed and arriving unexpectedly before mirabelle his forces hemmed in count hugh and duke arthur between the town and citadel his enemies had reckoned on his character as a sluggard and a fainant knight but they reckoned in vain he gave them fierce battle on his arrival, and overthrew them with an utter defeat, taking prisoners his rival in love, Count Hugh, and his rival in empire, Duke Arthur, together with four and twenty of the principal barons of Poitou, who had risen for the right of young Arthur, or were allies of the Count. Ralph of Coggeshall and Matthew Paris declare that Queen Eleonora charged her son on her malediction to not harm the noble boy whom he had made his prisoner. While the Queen Mother retained her faculties, John contented himself with incarcerating Arthur in the Citadel of Falaise, but he insulted Count Hugh, the unfortunate lover of his Queen, with every species of personal indignity, carrying him and the insurgent barons of Poitou, after him wherever he went, chained hand and foot in timbrel carts, drawn by oxen. A mode of traveling, says a Provencal chronicler, very pathetically, to which they were not accustomed. In this manner he dragged them after him, till he made them embark with him for England. Queen Isabella must have exerted her utmost influence, to save the unfortunate Lusignan from the fate of his fellow prisoners, for two and twenty Poictivine lords, who had been exhibited with Count Hugh in the carts, were starved to death in the dungeons of Corfe Castle, by the orders of King John the lover of Isabella, positively refusing any submission to the abductor of his bride, was consigned to a weary confinement in the dungeon of Bristol Castle, at the same time with John's other hapless prisoner, Eleanor, the sister of Arthur, surnamed the Pearl of Brittany. Isabella of Angoulême had not borne an heir to John when Arthur was cut off in 1202. Therefore, after John had destroyed this promising scion of Plantagenet, the sole representative of that heroic line was his dishonored self. The decision of the 12 peers of France, convened to inquire into the fate of Arthur, declared Normandy forfeited by King John in 1203. The demise of Queen Eleonora, his mother, took place the year after. She lived to mourn over the dismemberment of the continental possessions of her family. Paulus Emilius, in his life of Philip Augustus, declares that the Queen Mother interceded strenuously for Arthur, and died of sorrow when she found the depths of guilt into which John had plunged. The annals of the monks of Fontaroud testify that Queen Eleonora took the veil of their order in the year 1202, and that she died in the year 1204, having been for many months wholly dead to the world. Her last charter is given to the men of Oleron soon after the demise of her son, Richard I. In this document, she confirms the privileges of this great maritime guild, or fraternity. Adversity evidently improved the character of Eleonora of Aquitaine, and after the violent passions of her youth had been corrected by sorrow and experience, her life exhibits many traces of a great ruler and magnanimous sovereign. A good moral education would have rendered Eleonora of Aquitaine one of the greatest characters of her time. She had been reared in her sunny fatherland, as the gay votaress of pleasure. Her intellectual cultivation had been considerable, but its sole end was to enhance the delights of a voluptuous life, by calling into activity all the powers of a poetic mind. Slowly and surely she learned the stern lesson of life, that power, beauty, and royalty, are but vanity, if not linked with moral excellence. She learned it too late, for the thorns her own reckless hand had planted beset her path to the latest hour of her existence. She was buried at the side of Henry the Second at Fontouraud, where her tomb was to be seen, with its recumbent statue, till the French Revolution. The face of this effigy is beautifully worked with strokes of the pencil, like miniature. The features are noble and intellectual. Eleonora wears the gorette, wimple, and coverchief. Over this headgear is a regal diadem. The royal mantle is folded gracefully round her waist. It is of garter blue, figured with silver crescents. A book was once held and the hands clasped on her breast, but both hands and book are now broken away. With his mother, King John lost all fear and shame distinct as his character stands, on a bad eminence, the reader of general history knows little of the atrocity of this man, whose wickedness was of the active and impetuous quality, sometimes seen in the natives of the south of Europe, combined with the most prominent defects of the English disposition. He exhibits the traits of the depraved Provencal, whose civilization at that era, degenerated to corruption, joined to the brutality of his worst English subjects, Then, in a semi-barbarous state. Isabella's influence did not mend his manners. He became notoriously worse after his union with her. Ignorance could not be pleaded as an excuse for John's enormities. Like all the sons of Eleonora of Aquitaine, he had literary tastes. Some items in his clothes rolls prove the fact that King John read books of high character. His mandate to Reginald de Cornhill, requires him to send to Windsor the romance of the history of England. The abbot of reading supplied his sovereign with the Old Testament, Hugh St. Victor on the sacraments, the sentences of Petre Lombard, the epistles of St. Austin, Origen's treatise, and Arian. The abbot likewise acknowledges that he has a book belonging to the king called Pliny. After the dower lands of the English queens had been left free by the death of the queen mother and the composition of Berengaria, King John endowed his wife most richly with many towns in the west of England, besides Exeter and the tin mines of Cornwall and Devonshire. The jointshire palace of the heiress of Angoulême was that ancient residence of the conqueror, the castle of Berkhamstead, in Hertfordshire. Queen Isabella accompanied her dishonored lord to England, December 6th, 1203. As Aquitaine, since the captivity of Count Hugh de Lusignan, had been in a state of revolt, John was forced to reside in England, until he made an attempt to subdue Poitou in 1206. Having set at liberty the queen's unfortunate lover, Hugh de Lusignan, and entered into a Pacific treaty with him, he embarked with him, and they soon after landed at Rochelle by the influence of Lusignan, the principal part of the south of France, again owned the sway of the line of the Plantagenet. Queen Isabella, during the king's absence, brought him an heir at Winchester, who received the name Henry. After his return to England, King John began utterly to disregard all the ancient laws of his kingdom, and when the barons murmured, he required from them the surrender of their children as hostages. In the tower rolls exist documents, proving that those young nobles were appointed to wait on his queen at Windsor and Winchester, where they attended her in bands, serving her at meals, and following her at cavalcades and processions. End of section three.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.